Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olivest. Have you ever been to a beautiful city somewhere where there are cafes and shops and businesses built along narrow streets, and you learn that the foundations of the streets were laid thousands of years ago? They've been inhabited continuously with people living their lives and tearing down old structures and building up new ones over and over and over again upon that same grid, those same streets, generation after generation. Have you ever wondered who decided on this street layout? When? Why? Somebody made it up at some point. Is this city grid still serving the needs of the people who are building their lives on these streets now? Today, we will be discussing a book that examines the foundations of patriarchy, the cultural, psychological, and political system upon which humans have been building their societies and their religions and their personal lives for thousands of years. The book is called The Creation of Patriarchy, and it's by Gerda Lerner. Written in 1986, it answers the questions of who, when, how, and why of these foundations. But before we start, I want to introduce my guest, Sherry Crawford. Hi, Sherry. Hi, Amy. Before we dive into the book, I just want to take a minute and learn a little bit of background about the author of our text, Gerda Lerner. So Sherry, if you could just tell us a little bit about the author, that would be great. Okay. Gerda Hedwig Kronstein was born to a wealthy Jewish family in Vienna, 1920. In 1934, a virtual civil war broke out in Vienna between Nazis and leftist workers. Many Jewish men were starting to be arrested, so Gerda's father left the family for safety, intending to send for them later. In his absence, the Nazi stormtroopers arrested Gerda and her mother instead, seeking to use them as bait to force her father to return. Gerda and her mother were imprisoned separately and held in prison for six weeks and Gerda believed she survived only because some communist cellmates shared their food with her. She looked back on these experiences as a Nazi resistor and an imprisoned teenager as the most formative influences of her life. She arrived in America in 1939. She soon met Carl Lerner, a communist theater director, fell in love, and in 1941 married him. They moved to Los Angeles, where he became a successful film editor, and she began writing. In 1943, she became a citizen. Having mastered the English language with astonishing speed, she collaborated with Carl on some screenplays, including Black Like Me, which he then directed. She soon became a national leader in the Congress of American Women, working with poor Black women and beginning to understand the limitations of her own middle-class assumptions. At age 38, Gerda enrolled in college and then graduate school at Columbia, earning both a bachelor's degree and a PhD in six years. (laughs) She began teaching at Sarah Lawrence College in 1968 and worked to establish a master's program in women's history, which still continues. She built the country's first PhD program in women's history. She lectured widely on the importance of women's history, and one of her most famous quotes is, quote, women's history is the primary tool for women's emancipation. She claimed that depriving women of education and knowledge of their own history was the root of their subordination. This is why she dedicated her life to women's history. Thanks, Sherry. And let's dive into the book. So we'll start with the introduction. First, Sherry, can you tell us some of the parts that you thought were most important from the intro? 
Yes, I'm going to start with a quote from Gerda. Quote, women are and have been central, not marginal, to the making of society and to the building of civilization. Women have also shared with men in preserving collective memory. History making, on the other hand, is a historical creation which dates from the invention of writing in ancient Mesopotamia. From the time of the king lists of ancient Sumer on, historians have selected the events to be recorded and have interpreted them so as to give them meaning and significance. Until the most recent past, these historians have been men, and what they have recorded is what men have done and experienced and found significant. They have called this history and claimed universality for it. What women have done and experienced has been left unrecorded, neglected, and ignored in interpretation. Historical scholarship up to the most recent past has been women as marginal to the making of civilization and as unessential to those pursuits defined as having historical significance. Thus, the recorded and interpreted record of the past of the human race is only a partial record in that it omits the past of half of humankind and it is distorted, end quote. Oof. Yeah. <laughs> Almost all of the records we have of human history have been written from men's point of view. And it makes me wonder, what would history look like if women had been writing the records all of this time? And if women had been interpreting the historical records and creating the stories? Totally. That's like a really interesting thing to think about. Like our whole concept of ourselves and our history and what it means to be human, I think would be different if it had been women all along, right? Right, right. Um, that actually, that reminds me of another quote from the int introduction where she says, um, quote, women have been kept from knowing their history and from interpreting history, either their own or that of men. Women have been systematically excluded from the enterprise of creating symbol systems, philosophies, science, and law. Women have not only been educationally deprived throughout historical time in every known society, they have been excluded from theory formation, end quote. So I guess that just emphasizes the, the quote that you said. So it's not only like recording the names and dates of like, we think this is important for everybody to remember, but also interpreting what that meant. And then again, like kind of the mythology and the poetry and the science and philosophy about what it all means, that's also been completely unavailable to women. And women have been completely unable to participate in that process of creating the symbol systems. So just so one-sided. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. One more quote from the intro quote, many men and women have suffered exclusion and discrimination because of their class. No man has been excluded from the historical record because of his sex yet all women were end quote. Mm. This is significant because it's an argument we still hear all the time. Uh, some people dismiss sexism and say, well, men have had, had it bad too. Not all men are leaders. Not all men are rich. Not all men have authority. Not all men have power. And that's true. But the fact is that in a patriarchal system, many men are excluded from power and all women are excluded from power. Okay. The next part that we wanted to highlight after the introduction is where Lerner talks about um, some steps of 
social evolution that happened before the invention of writing. So before we have any written history. So now we're going to take turns telling a story of the chronology of our prehistoric human ancestors and what archaeologists think happened between the time that Homo Homo sapiens started walking around on two legs all the way to the time that people developed written language in the Fertile Crescent in about 3000 BCE. So Sherry, do you want to start us off? Okay. Let's start with the passage straight from the book. Quote, three million years ago to a hundred thousand years ago, as humans evolved, the first characteristic distinguishing humans from other primates is the prolonged and helpless infancy of the human child. This is the direct result of bipedalism, which led to the narrowing of the female pelvis and birth canal due to upright posture. One result of this was that human babies were born at a greater stage of immaturity than other primates with relatively smaller heads in order to ease passage through the birth canal. Further, in contrast to the most highly developed apes, human babies are born naked and therefore must experience a greater need for warmth. They cannot grasp their mothers for steady support. So mothers must use their hands or later substitutes for hands to cradle their infants against them. The human brain develops for many years during the child's period of infancy and complete dependency. During this period, the role of females was crucial. Infant survival depended on maternal care, end quote. So basically, because human walk, humans walked on two legs, babies were born earlier in their gestation, which meant that females needed to breastfeed and care for their babies for a long time. However, Amy, you and I just read that New York Times article this week mm-hmm. about the remains of that 9,000-year-old uh, big game hunter yes. buried in the Andes, right? Yes. So interesting. So the article says, here's the quote, like other hunters of the period, this person was buried with a specialized toolkit associated with stalking large game. There was nothing particularly unusual about the body though the leg bones seemed a little slim for an adult male hunter. But when scientists analyze the tooth enamel using a method borrowed from forensics that reveals whether a person carries the male or female version of a protein called amelogenin, the hunter turned out to be female, end quote. Mm-hmm. And once these scientists knew there was one female, they tested bodies of 26 hunters and 10 of them were female, which is a complete challenge to the assumptions we have always had about hunter-gatherer societies. Yes, so interesting. Okay, continuing where you were, Sherry, um, Lerner says, quote, anthropologist Elise Boulding sees in the Neolithic societies an egalitarian sharing of work in which each sex developed appropriate skills and knowledge essential for group survival. She tells us that food gathering demanded elaborate knowledge of the ecology of plants and trees and roots, their properties as food and as medicine. She describes primitive women as guardian of the domestic fire, as the inventor of clay and woven vessels, by means of which the tribe's surpluses could be saved for lean times, end quote. Okay, so far we have the factors that, one, women are limited by pregnancy and breastfeeding, two, Early cultures worshipped goddesses for being able to create life. Three, women contributed to human survival by their knowledge of plants for food and medicine. And they created clay vessels and woven vessels for sorting that food and medicine. 
And as we mentioned before, there's new evidence that women were hunting as well. So despite different biological functions, early human societies seemed possibly pretty egalitarian. But the next factor that Lerner talks about is that men started wars. And it's hard to know exactly what happened and why, because this is all before humans started writing anything down. But Lerner says, quote, theorists have offered a variety of hypotheses to explain the rise of man, the warrior, and the propensity of men to create militaristic structures. These have ranged from biological explanations, men's higher testosterone levels and greater strength make them more aggressive, to psychological ones. Men compensate for their inability to bear children by sexual dominance over women and by aggression toward other men, end quote. I think it's great that Lerner presents a bunch of ideas, but that she doesn't say it's definitely just testosterone that makes men more aggressive because Mm -hmm. she is a social scientist and historian, and she doesn't want to make assumptions. She's just trying to present all the theories and all the data, which like we just talked about, is really important because sometimes our assumptions are wrong. Yes, that's definitely true. The next step in history that Lerner talks about is that men start to see women as commodities. So there's lots of disagreement between scholars about how this developed. And again, there's still no written record. But Lerner presents a few different theories. She quotes Claude Levi-Strauss, who is a very famous 20th century anthropologist, as saying the following, quote, the exchange of women, a phenomenon observed in tribal societies in many different areas of the world, was a leading cause of female subordination. It may take many different forms, such as the forceful removal of women from their home tribe, bride stealing, ritual defloration or rape, and negotiated marriages, end quote. Then Lerner says, quote, Levi-Strauss and Claude Melissou, these two anthropologists, believe that it is the exchange of women through which private property is eventually created. Melissou argues that women's biological vulnerability in childbirth led tribes to procure more women from other groups, and that this tendency toward the theft of women led to constant intertribal warfare. In the process, a warrior culture emerged. Another consequence of this theft of women is that the conquered women were protected by the men who had conquered them, or by the entire conquering tribe. In the process, women were thought of as possessions, as things. They became reified, while men became the reifiers, because they conquered and protected. Women's reproductive capacity is first recognized as a tribal resource. Then, as ruling elites develop, it is acquired as the property of a particular kin group, end quote. Okay, so this is the beginning of the reification, as she says, of women. And reification means making an idea or a person into a thing. That brings us to the agricultural revolution. Gernot Lerner says, the material conditions of grain agriculture demand group cohesiveness and continuity over time thus strengthening household structure. Since the amount of food depends on the availability of labor, production becomes the chief concern. This has two consequences. One, it strengthens the influence of older males. And two, it increases the tribe's incentive for acquiring more women. In the fully developed society based on plow agriculture, women and children are indispensable to the production process. Children have now become an economic asset. 
At this stage, tribes seek to acquire the reproductive potential of women rather than women themselves, end quote. So basically, humans used to be hunter-gatherers roaming over the land with men and women doing different work and within a somewhat equal power dynamic. But then once they figured out how to grow food, then they stayed in one place and they started harvesting more food than they needed, which made them have a sense of ownership over food and land and other human beings, which they could acquire to work the land and then own more stuff and have more power. Gerner Lerner does go on to say, quote, the agricultural economic practice reinforced men's control over surpluses. Horticultural activities are more productive than substance gathering and produce leisure time, but the allocation of leisure time is uneven. Men benefit more from it than women due to the fact that the food preparation and child rearing activities of women continue unrelieved. Thus, men presumably could employ their new leisure time to develop craft skills, initiate rituals to enhance their power, and influence and manage surpluses. I do not wish to suggest either determinism or conscious manipulation here. Quite the contrary. Things developed in certain ways, which then had certain consequences, which neither men nor women intended. Gerda goes on to say, I have tried to show how it might have come to pass that women agreed to a sexual division of labor, which would eventually disadvantage them without having been able to foresee the later consequence. Sometime during the agricultural revolution, relatively egalitarian societies with a sexual division of labor based on biological necessity gave way to more highly structured societies in which both private property and the exchange of women were common. Many societies changed from egalitarian, matrilineal, and matrilocal to patrilineal and patrilocal. Nowhere is there any evidence of a reverse process going from patriliny to matriliny. The more complex societies featured a division of labor no longer based only on biological distinctions, but also on hierarchy and the power of some men over other men and all women, end quote. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is mind-blowing. Um, mm-hmm. So um, moving along, as a result of the agricultural revolution, we arrive at, quote, the rise of civilization as we know it. So Lerner says that the process by which scattered Neolithic villages, and we should I should mention Neolithic means the New Stone Age, mm-hmm. So as these villages became agricultural communities after the agricultural revolution, and then they became urban centers and finally states, that process has been called the urban revolution or the rise of civilization. All of these civilizations, interestingly, are characterized by a few things. First, the emergence of property classes and hierarchies. Two, commodity production with a specialization and organized trade over distant regions. Three, consolidation of military elites. Four, kingship. Five, the institutionalization of slavery. And six, transition from kin dominance to patriarchal families. And now, ladies and gentlemen, we have written records. (laughs) We have arrived. I know, right? So the invention of writing happened in around 3000 BCE in Sumer, which is between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers in modern day Iraq. By the time humans started writing, 
women had already been subjugated for a long, long, long time. So it was just taken for granted as normal. And here is just a brief overview of the records that we find written about women in Mesopotamia around this time. So here's some common features. We find female subordination within the family becomes institutionalized and codified in law. Prostitution becomes established and regulated. Women are excluded from certain occupations and professions. And after the invention of writing and establishment of formal learning, women are excluded from equal access to that education. And then also female deities, which had been worshipped, are subordinated to chief male gods. And origin myths legitimate male ascendancy. So those are the features that we find in the earliest human writings. Okay, now we're going to go forward a little bit in history and talk about some of the most famous documents from Mesopotamia. The three major preserved collections of Mesopotamian law are the Codex Hammurabi, Middle Assyrian laws, and the Hittite laws. We're going to highlight a couple from the Code of Hammurabi and the Middle Assyrian laws, which were written from about 1700 BC and onward for a few centuries. And just a content warning that some of these are violent and very hard to hear. The Code of Hammurabi, quote, If a mother commits incest with her son, both the mother and the son are put to death. But if a father rapes his daughter, he just gets banished from the city. If a father rapes the bride of his son before the marriage has been consummated, the father is fined. But if he rapes his son's wife after the marriage has been consummated, the father is treated as an adulterer and gets the death penalty, end quote. So what that shows us is that once the marriage is consummated, the wife has become the son's property and the father mm -hmm. is punished, not because he's harmed a woman, but because he has disrespected a man. Mm -hmm. Okay, next one. Middle Assyrian Law 55 deals in detail with the rape of a virgin. It says, quote, if a married man rapes a virgin who lives in her father's house, the father of the virgin shall take the wife of the ravisher of the virgin and give her to be dishonored. He shall not give her back to her husband, but shall take her. The father shall give his daughter who has been ravished as a spouse to her ravisher. If the rapist has no wife, he must pay the price of a virgin to the father, marry the girl, and know that he can never divorce her. If the girl's father does not agree to this, he shall accept the money fine and give his daughter to whom he pleases, end quote. Oh, I just want to like wipe that from my mind. <laughs> so let me, so if I understand this right, if a married man rapes a girl, then the wife of the rapist gets raped by the father of the raped girl and the girl uh, who has been raped is considered ruined and no one will ever marry her. So she's married off to her rapist. So yep. if the father of the raped girl doesn't want to marry her off to the rapist, he still retains his right to give his daughter to whomever he wants. Okay. Yeah. And one last one, which demonstrates the degree to which men felt they owned women's bodies. Middle Assyrian law 53. If a woman causes her own miscarriage, quote, and proof has been brought against her, she shall be impaled and shall not be buried. If that woman was concealed when she cast the fruit of her womb and it was not told to the king, and at that point, the tablet breaks off, end quote. Mm -hmm. Gerda Lerner goes on to say this, quote, what is striking here 
is, first of all, that self-induced abortion is regarded as a public crime of which the king must be apprised. Impalement and refusal of burial are the severest penalties meted out in the Middle Assyrian legal system, and they are public penalties for high crimes. Why should a woman's self-induced abortion be deemed a crime of equal severity to high treason or assault upon the king? The savage punishment against self-abortion has to do with the importance placed throughout the Middle Assyrian law on the connection between the power of the king and the power of the patriarchal family head over his wives and children. Thus, the right of the father, hitherto practiced and sanctioned by custom, to decide over the lives of his infant children, which in practice meant the decision of whether his infant daughters should live or die, is in the Middle Assyrian law equated with the keeping of social order. For the wife to usurp such a right is now seen as equal in magnitude to treason or an assault upon the king. The control of female sexuality previously left to individual husbands or to family heads had now become a matter of state regulation end quote. These are just some examples of some of humanity's earliest written laws. These are the foundations upon which human civilization was built. They are so misogynistic and Mm -hmm. so violent. Yeah, that's heavy and awful and really instructive and important to know, in my opinion. It is. And that leads us to our last topic today, which is the ancient goddesses. So Gerda Lerner points out that for hundreds or even thousands of years, goddesses were still worshipped and priestesses still officiated and female oracles were prophesying even as the women were losing their rights and their status um, as males were just ascending and subjugating the women in all of the other areas. So let's look at two ancient goddesses, Ishtar, who is also called Inanna, and Asherah. So Ishtar Inanna was the ancient Mesopotamian goddess associated with love, beauty, sex, war, justice, and political power. She kind of covers the bases. Mm-hmm. She was originally called Inanna and worshipped in Sumer from 4,000 to 3,000, roughly, uh, BCE. And she was later worshipped by the Akkadians, Babylonians, and Assyrians under the name Ishtar. She was known as the Queen of Heaven, and she is the first known deity for which we have written evidence. The first known deity of either gender. Isn't that interesting? (laughs) I had not known that. Yeah. And she was a woman. She is alluded to in the Hebrew Bible, and she greatly influenced the Phoenician goddess Ostereth, who later influenced the development of the Greek goddess Aphrodite. Her cult continued to flourish until its gradual decline between the 1st and 6th centuries of the Common Era in the wake of Christianity. And actually, it survived, the worship of Ishtar or Inanna survived in parts of Upper Mesopotamia among Assyrian communities as late as the 18th century. Lerner says about Inanna, Ishtar, quote, Worshippers regarded the goddess as all-powerful. In the symbol of the goddess's vulva, fashioned of precious stones and offered up in her praise, they celebrated the sacredness of female sexuality and its mysterious life-giving force, which included the power to heal. And in the very prayers appealing to the goddess's mercy, they praised her as mistress of the battlefield, more powerful than kings, more powerful than other 
male gods. One cannot help but wonder at the contradiction between the power of the goddesses and the increasing societal constraints upon the lives of most women in ancient Mesopotamia, end quote. Yeah, absolute contradiction. (laughs) Like two things are true at the same time. That's something I say in my practice all the time. Two things are true Mm -hmm. at the same time. And here we see it so blatant. So Asherah was the mother goddess in ancient Semitic religion. She was mentioned in Hebrew, Akkadian, and Hittite texts for many hundreds of years around 2000 to 1000 BCE. She was worshipped as the mother of heaven and the creatrix of the gods. She was also known as the wife of the king of heaven, who was called El, and later Yahweh in the Bible. There are many ancient records that read Yahweh and his Asherah. Her symbol was the tree, and in these ancient texts, you hear about Asherah poles. In the Bible, you hear about Asherah poles and worshiping in groves. This refers to the worship of the mother goddess, which often happened in forests. There are also many, many goddess figurines representing Asherah that have been unearthed in Israel and the surrounding areas. So despite her association with Yahweh in sources other than the Bible, starting in about 586 BCE, Yahweh turned into a jealous god, and the writers of the Bible vilified the goddess and wiped her from memory. In Deuteronomy 12, Yahweh commands the destruction of her shrines. Remember when Moses and Joshua arrive in Canaan, and they kill everyone and destroy their idols, right? Mm Mm-hmm. The Canaanites worshipped Asherah. So Mm. those records are Hebrew people claiming that their male father god is commanding them to destroy all evidence of a mother god. Remember all the references to God telling the people of Israel to burn down the groves? Those groves were the forests where Asherah was worshipped. This was a culture that used to worship a mother and was now burning trees down and destroying the divine feminine. I I should point out that this wasn't just the Hebrews doing this to Asherah. This happened all around the Near East. Yeah, this happened everywhere. The the subjugation of the female goddesses by male gods, right? Um, Lerner says, quote, The observable pattern is, first, the demotion of the mother goddess figure and the ascendance and later dominance of her male consort or son. Then his merging with a storm god into a male creator god who heads the pantheon of gods and goddesses. Wherever such changes occur, the power of creation and of fertility is transferred from the goddess to the god, end quote. So so some goddesses were turned into men. Some, like the Egyptian goddess Isis, started out as the supreme being, but then became the wife or the consort, and then morphed into the Magna Mater, or the Great Mother, who was known in Western Asia and in Greek and Roman mythology. And then some had their various powers and roles splintered into many less powerful goddesses, like you get Aphrodite and Artemis and Hera. So they just kind of split into a lot of different less powerful female figures. Mm-hmm. And to me, this I mean, it just reminds me of when Lerner says that men are the symbol makers. They not only ruled women, they then created the stories and the meaning and the interpretation that affected how human beings see themselves and, and how they see their place in the world. So 
those stories, I think, at least speaking from personal experience, I think the stories that I learned as a little child really impacted my own psyche and the way I saw myself and my place in the world. And I personally think stories are really, really powerful. Absolutely. um, Really significant. That brings us to the end, Sherry, the end of part one of the creation of patriarchy. What would you say is a takeaway from what we read and discussed today? First, I want to pause. Oh, I get emotional when I just think about it. I just want to hold sacred space for these women. They were disempowered and dehumanized and raped and abused and forgotten. And turns out it's all been recorded. Uh, Here I am in my 40s, um, now learning about how this oppression was not accidental. It was systemic and pervasive across so many cultures. I just want to say thank you to all of these nameless women. Today, I'm able to live the life that I want and the life that I choose. And it's all on their backs, I guess. Things are better for me and my daughters, um, but it's still evident that so much change still needs to be made. That's beautiful, Sherry. Thank you so much. Thank you for that beautiful way to end this episode. Mm -hmm.